Hello, and welcome back to Waking Cosmos, where I have open-minded but philosophically literate conversations about consciousness and its place in reality. Adrian here, and today I'm joined by the philosopher and consciousness researcher Sharon Rollette. In this conversation, we explore Sharon's groundbreaking philosophical work on moral realism and her pursuit of a universal ethical theory grounded in the intrinsic value of conscious states. Sharon's book about this, The Feeling of Value, is in my opinion a highly convincing and important work of metaethics, which comes very close to some of my own thinking. We also discuss some more speculative ideas, such as the possibility that value is a deep, animating feature of reality, as well as Sharon's view that coincidences could reveal more about reality than we realise. Before we begin, a brief reminder that you can support the continued existence of Waking Cosmos by subscribing to my Patreon at patreon.com wakingcosmos, which will also get you early access to new episodes. And to those of you who are already subscribed, thank you very much for your support. Okay, without further delay, here is my conversation with Sharon Rollette. Hi Sharon, how are you? Good, how are you Adrian? Yeah, it's great to be with you. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. I think your ideas in particular about ethics and consciousness are fascinating and groundbreaking, honestly. So really great to have you on. I think we're going to have a very interesting conversation. Well, I really appreciate your interest in these ideas. I mean, obviously I find them fascinating. Uh, It's wonderful to find other people that are really interested in them as well. So yeah, I look forward to talking to you. Okay, so before we begin, it's a bit of a tradition on the podcast at this point, but could you define what you as a philosopher mean by the word consciousness, since I'm sure it'll be coming up quite a bit in today's conversation? Philosophers actually use consciousness in at least two broad sorts of ways. We talk about access consciousness and phenomenal consciousness. So access consciousness is your ability to be conscious of certain information that you can access. So you can have memories that you can call up. You have the ability to access your thoughts or your beliefs in order to reason about them, in order for them to inform the way that you talk or the behavior that you have. But then we also talk about phenomenal consciousness, which is this feeling of what it's like to have thoughts, to have beliefs, to have perceptions. So access consciousness is something that we can observe from the outside so we can tell whether a being is conscious in this way by the way that it behaves and whether a person is conscious of certain things by whether those things inform what that person says or what that person does. But this question of whether there's something that it's like to be another person or some other being or even you know maybe an intelligent computer is a very different question, one that we have a lot more trouble answering by just observing something from the outside because it seems like it could be that people or computers or creatures could behave as though, uh, behave in the same way that we behave when there's something that it's like to be us, but yet it seems conceptually possible that there might not be something that it's like to be that thing from the inside. So I think especially when we're talking about the questions that are coming up these days about the possible consciousness of computers, um, artificial intelligence, We really have to separate these two kinds of consciousness and say, well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the intelligent manipulation of information or are we talking about something that it's like to be the thing? And I think that second question 
Well, that's the one that fascinates me the most, and it's going to be the most relevant to what we're talking about with ethics today. Perfect. So today we're using the word consciousness to mean everything in the realm of experience, and specifically the what its likeness of conscious states. And so the precise term would be phenomenal consciousness.、Um, so Sharon, I'm very keen to talk to you today about this wonderful book that you've written, titled "The Feeling of Value." How did this book come about? Am I right in thinking that this was your doctoral thesis? Yes. Yeah. I、um, originally finished it in 2008. That's when I graduated from NYU, New York University. So yes, it was my doctoral thesis, and it grew out of one specific class that I took as a graduate student at NYU. I took a a class in metaethics with Sharon Street, and we were. Specifically, studying a book written by Alan Gibbard called "Thinking How to Live," and Gibbard's theory is that there are not objective moral truths in the world. We'll get into what you know what this means, but his theory is that there aren't objective moral truths. But when we're talking about ethics, we're really just expressing our intentions to to behave or to plan in certain ways, and that that's really all there is to the concept of goodness or rightness. And I found this very unintuitive. <laughs> It seemed very wrong to me that we didn't have any more substantive concept of what it was for something to be good or bad, except that we would intend to bring that thing about or to avoid that kind of thing. It seemed to me that when we have experiences like pleasure or pain, for instance, we directly experience. Something that has value in itself that we're not projecting onto our experiences. The experience is just—I mean, pain is just bad by itself. That's how it it comes to us. It, it wouldn't be pain if it didn't have that feeling of badness. And so I sort of had this that intuition in that class, and I tried to explain it within this graduate seminar. And you know, it's still this inchoate intuition at that point. And I feel like a lot of people didn't have any idea what I was talking about. But I had this real drive to try to explain to other people what this intuition was and why I felt like these expressivist and other anti-realist views were just wrong. That there was something much more objective about ethics, something that was given to us in experience. And so I wrote a paper about it for that class, and then it eventually grew into this this whole book. Wonderful. The first thing that jumped out to me from this book was that you have this very complimentary foreword from the philosopher Thomas Nagel,、uh, who is definitely one of my heroes and someone that's been a big influence on me, especially his book Mind and Cosmos from a few years ago.、Uh, yeah, was he one of your advisors? Yeah, he was. He was actually my primary advisor,、uh, and he's actually the reason that I went to NYU because I admired him as an undergrad. I can't remember the name of the paper. I mean, I read several of his things as an undergrad, but there was one particular paper that he wrote about the meaning of life, like searching for you know what is the meaning of our existence, and it seemed like this was something that other philosophers just weren't talking about, but that was really basic to, of course, the meaning of our existence, but to the questions that I was asking myself, and I was like, this is somebody who really gets what's important about philosophy, and this is somebody that I would like to to study with. So、um, that's why I ended up. One of the reasons that I ended up going to NYU, and honestly, he was a hero in philosophy. I mean, this was this was a very famous philosopher, and I didn't really think that I would get to necessarily 
have him as my dissertation advisor. But things worked out so that I got to be uh, his teaching assistant at one point, and we got to know each other a little bit. And then he graciously agreed to be on my dissertation committee, which was which was just wonderful. It was it was really great to have uh, conversations with him, being somebody that I think took seriously these sorts of these intuitions that you can have about value and meaning, and you're trying to to put them into words and to to break them down into concepts that you can reason about. And it's not always easy, but that doesn't mean that there's not something really valuable there. And sometimes you just have to try over and over and over again <laughs> to figure out how to explain it to yourself and to other people. So I really appreciated his perspective in, in that way. And yeah, it was, it was really delightful working with him. So one of the main things that you're doing in this book is you're putting forward what I think and several people I know also think is a very powerful argument for a kind of moral realism. Could you give us a brief overview of your metaethical position? Sure. So first of all, I am a moral realist, which means that I think that there are objective moral truths. That means that there are moral truths that don't depend on our opinions, our preferences, our thoughts, our attitudes about them, that they are true independently of what anyone thinks about them. So one of the things that has bothered me about moral realism is that so many moral realists rely on this faculty of intuition, which I have been talking about you know, having an intuition about something. Um, so it's not that I don't think that intuition is important at all, but I think that it's important as we explore our moral intuitions to be able to tell some sort of story about how those intuitions are actually giving us access to something that is real and independent of us, something that's objective. I've always been very interested in these epistemological questions. How do we come to know about objective moral truths. If there are these objective moral truths, how is it that somehow they impact my thinking? How am I able to develop true beliefs about them? And I have been very dissatisfied with the way that a lot of moral realists have tried to answer that question because they, they generally don't have an answer to that question. It's just, well, moral intuition is this brute fact. But why that's problematic is that people disagree about moral questions. Not about all moral questions. There are some areas where people generally agree, but there are many areas where we don't agree. And so if our moral intuitions are in conflict with one another, how can we say whose moral intuitions are correct and whose are incorrect if we don't have some idea about how the faculty of moral intuition works and how it's connecting us to some objective truth about the matter? So now we come to the details of my view, which I find compelling because of the way that they're able to answer this epistemological question and this metaphysical question about what these objective truths are. So I think that the property of intrinsic goodness and the property of intrinsic badness, that these properties of, of having value or disvalue are actually experiential properties. They're properties of our phenomenal consciousness. They're the properties that we experience when we experience pleasure, when we experience joy, happiness, all of those positive experiences that we have have this, this quality that is intrinsic goodness. In fact, you can't really describe what those experiences are without mentioning that they have this positive nature to them. 
similarly with pain and suffering and these various negative experiences that we have, they all have this similar quality of intrinsic badness. And I think this, in those experiences, those kinds of feelings, what we're doing is we're actually experiencing moral qualities. So that goodness is something that is actually present in our experience. Just like we have a direct connection to our experiences of colors or sounds or various other feelings, because intrinsic goodness and badness are actually properties of our experience, we have a direct connection to them through our experience. We're, we're directly acquainted with them, as philosophers like to say. Excellent. There is a very famous argument in moral philosophy from David Hume, which is that you can't get an ought from an is, that the external world is just a collection of impersonal facts, and that none of these facts can, on their own, tell us how we ought to act or how the world ought to be. But you don't agree with this. You believe that there are facts about the world, specifically facts about consciousness, which do tell us what we ought morally to do. Could you give a bit more detail about how you bridge this gap between facts and values? Yeah, I do see where Hume is coming from on this. And I really actually really like David Hume. And when I have studied him, like I, re I really resonate with what he what he does, because he takes these epistemological questions really seriously, and he's really examining our experience and breaking it down and trying to see if we can actually find justification for a lot of the things that we say that we know about the world. And I understand, you know, if you look at most of the types of experience that we have, we're experiencing the way that the world is, how the world is it doesn't seem like that can tell us how the world ought to be, because how the world ought to be is is something different from how the world is, right? It's, it's a, something that's just possible out there. It's something that we might be aiming towards, but there's this conceptual difference between how it is and how it ought to be. But when we experience pleasure and pain, I'm just going to use those as shorthands for all of these positive or negative experiences that we have. When we experience pleasure and pain, we experience something that isn't just brute is in the world, but it, it presents itself to us as something, pleasure, for instance, as something that it is good to have in the world. The world is a better place because of the existence of this thing. And when we have experienced pleasure, we think, okay, well, I want more of that in the future. This is something that's worth having. And when we experience pain, we experience the opposite of that, that this thing is something that's making the world worse by being here. If the world only had pain in it, it would be better off if the world didn't exist. It's the sort of thing that it's never worth pursuing as an end in itself. So I think, yeah, the is-ought distinction works in many, many classes of cases. But when you look at pleasure and pain, suddenly it doesn't seem so obvious that these are two distinct classes. Because I don't think you can describe what it is to feel pleasure or pain unless you talk about that value aspect, that valence aspect, the goodness or badness, the value or the disvalue of it. Something that you point out in the book is that one of the kind of classic mistakes that we make in ethics is to look for ethical facts in the physical world. And since, of course, we don't find them there, we then conclude to ourselves that there simply aren't any 
true objective ethical facts. But as the view that you're putting forward, I think really makes clear is that that kind of approach is simply overlooking the reality of consciousness. The existence of consciousness is a fact about the world, which right. entails, I think, certain ethical facts. And so, yeah, I agree with you. I think, you know, it does seem to be an undeniable ethical fact that, for example, it matters that conscious beings can suffer, uh, that it's intrinsic to the state itself that we should try to reduce it, um, at least where it serves no instrumental purpose. Right. Perhaps it would be good to say a bit more about your concept of instrumental value and uh, distinguish this from intrinsic value. So I think it's really easy for philosophers to get stuck on looking at the kinds of things that we can observe in the physical world, in the external world, and to think, well, those are the only legitimate kinds of properties that the world has, those sorts of things that are externally observable that different subjects can all observe at the same time and agree on the nature of. But those are really just one subclass of the many kinds of properties that exist in our world. And in consciousness, there's so much richness that we don't find within the physical world. And this this is a real puzzle for philosophers of mind who are trying to figure out, well, how does consciousness fit into the physical world? It seems like there are so many more phenomenal qualities, so many qualities to consciousness that don't exist in the physical world. The physical world is structure, has a lot of structure, but doesn't have these intrinsic qualities. So yeah, I think if we are focusing on the physical world, we're missing a lot that exists that we can only access through paying attention to our own mental lives. So now let's move on to talking about intrinsic and instrumental value, because I think this is really important for people to understand, to not just dismiss the view right away. Because when you first tell somebody, well, the only thing that matters ultimately is pleasure and pain. Those are the only things that are intrinsically good or bad. They're like, well, but there are lots of cases where Pain is useful for getting people not to hurt themselves or to pay attention to things that are important. And that's absolutely true. And there are lots of pleasures that people experience that aren't necessarily instrumentally good in the long run. For instance, if you're taking pleasure primarily in heroin, let's say, or other, other drugs that can be very hard on your body and disabling to you over the long term and end up leading to less pleasure in the future. So when we're evaluating whether any particular pleasure or pain is good or bad, all things considered, we have to not just look at the intrinsic goodness or badness of that pleasure or pain, that what you experience in that moment, but also look at the way that it's going to affect what you experience in the future. And that's the instrumental portion of it. Okay. So I think we should get into the hedonistic aspect of your view quite soon, because I think this will be where some people have questions or need uh, some more convincing on this idea that value exists entirely within these uh, positive and negative conscious states. But before we get into that, I do want to probe a bit further into how you see the existence of value. I got the impression in the book that in your view, when we are experiencing uh, these positive and negative qualia, uh, that we are, in fact, making contact with something very deep about reality. 
even perhaps at an ontological level. Is that your view or, or could you clarify the kind of existence that you do give to value? I do think that we are, we're perceiving something that is very ontologically deep. It's tricky to say exactly what's happening here because when we say perceive or um, like you were saying, making contact with, sometimes it makes it sound like the goodness or badness is outside of us and we're then our experience is something separate that's representing that goodness or badness that's outside of us. And I don't think that's the case. I think that when we are experiencing pleasure or pain or even other phenomenal qualities, we're actually being constituted by those things. Those things are part of who we are as experiencing beings in that moment. And so there's no distance between us and the thing that we're perceiving. So it's not that we're, we're seeing some deep ontological reality that's outside of ourselves, but we're directly acquainted with it because that is our own internal nature. Right. There definitely are and have been philosophers who argue that value could be a deep feature of the universe. And even that the universe might be in some deep way an expression of value. Uh, so the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead famously argued along these lines. More recently, Philip Goff has defended something similar. So yeah, it might seem, I think, far-fetched to some people, this idea that value is an intrinsic feature of the world. Um, but there are serious philosophers who do consider that. It's not strictly speaking, the topic of today's conversation, but it is something that I think is worth keeping in mind. Absolutely. And actually, um, I'm working on a new book right now um, that is specifically dealing with these questions because it's looking at the relationship between this ethical view and the debates that are going on in philosophy of mind right now. And specifically, uh, the debates that are going on around panpsychism and Brusselian monism and I actually think Alfred North Whitehead had a lot of really important insights about the way that value factors into the deeper nature of the world. And, and it actually is, is part of the inner nature of causality itself, which makes sense. If you think about the way that pleasure and pain, they not only represent themselves as things that you know, make the world better or worse, but they motivate us, right? When we experience them, they change the behaviors that we have and the decisions that we make. And I think in a way, we're having an inner experience of how causality works at that moment. So that's stuff that I'm exploring in this new book. So I, I, really, I really get what you're saying. I really think that, that that is important. There's this whole deeper mystery about these things that David Hume, who, looking at the external world and, and reducing everything to what we can externally observe, he said, well, yeah, we never observe causality. There's no sense impression of causality. But when you start looking inside, as Whitehead and, and others have suggested that we should do, then you start to see, oh, well, maybe we are acquainted with what's happening in causality. And we are acquainted with what's happening in this realm of value and certain things can be better or worse than others. So I, I really think all of these mysteries are connected and that maybe ultimately we're going to be able to shed a lot more light on the nature of consciousness by taking seriously the experience of value. Absolutely. And 
that is really the impression that I get from reading your book. Yeah, you're not specifically talking about panpsychism or, or Russellian monism in the book, but you have expressed in, in other places that you are open to the possibility that consciousness could be among nature's deep fundamentals. And mm -hmm. that is a view that I am open to as well. To what extent would consciousness being fundamental have an effect on your ethical thesis? Could we still follow your view if we were, for example, a materialist about consciousness or an illusionist about consciousness? Would the ethical logic of your position still run through? I certainly don't think you have to be a panpsychist or a Russellian monist in order for my view to make sense. But I, I think the one thing that you do have to accept is that there is such a thing as phenomenal consciousness. There is a what it's likeness to experience certain things because that's where that acquaintance with the, the intrinsic goodness or badness of pleasure or pain comes from. It doesn't come from the fact that they motivate us, uh, although, I mean, that's also important, but that's not where the thrust of the, the normativity, the, the ethical impulse comes from. It comes from what it's like to experience these things. It's not just that they motivate us, but that they justify that motivation. So if you don't, if you don't think that there is a, a thing that it's like to have pain or pleasure, then I don't think this view is going to be compelling to you. <laughs> but I don't really understand how you could think that there isn't something that it's like right. to experience pain or pleasure especially with pain. If you don't think there's anything that it's like to be in pain, yeah, I don't think moral realism is going to be a very attractive view for you. Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult to make intelligible the idea that people don't experience pain, uh, but they are very committed to using anesthetic at the dentist. <laughs> so personally, I am, I think, pretty well fully convinced that all value exists in consciousness or by relation to consciousness. I don't actually think it's intelligible to talk about value outside of consciousness. Um, I'm open to be proven wrong about that, though. But I do think it's very difficult to shake the intuition that there is something more to value in the universe than just pleasure and pain, even very broadly defined. Um, you know, when I think about just how vast the uh, the state space of consciousness is and just how little of it that we've explored so far... I do feel that there may be other important dimensions of value that we are just not aware of yet. Is that at all a concern that you have, or are you confident that these kinds of positive and negative normative qualia are the only conceivable source of intrinsic value? So you think that they, they necessarily have to do with consciousness. So would, would it make sense for there to be value without experience? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, but then on the other hand, you say, but maybe pleasure and pain aren't exhaustive of all of the things, all of the experiences that could be valuable or disvaluable. Yeah, that's right. Well, let me make clear, because I've been using sort of pleasure and pain as these shorthands, um, and sometimes that can be misleading. So when I'm saying pleasure, what I really mean is all experiences that have positive normative qualia. These are all the kinds of experiences that you could have that would have this positive valence, this ought to be-ness. And that when I'm talking about pain, I'm, I'm not just talking about pain, I'm talking about all of these things, 
all the experiences that we have that have this negative valence, this ought not to be-ness. I certainly do not want to rule out that there could be even more kinds of experience that we could have that could have these positive and negative valences to them than what we have already experienced, you know, in our, our limited time here on earth. It could be much, much more vast. But I think along with you, that somehow it's got to be experiential. For it to be goodness, it has to be experienceable and it has to be positive. So I almost feel like the way that I'm trying to define what the, the positive normative qualia is would automatically encompass any of those other experiences that we have. Right. Okay, so in the book, you have described the view that comes out of your metaethical position as a form of utilitarianism. And I think utilitarianism, much like hedonism, is quite often misunderstood, especially outside of philosophy. So perhaps you could just first outline for people what utilitarianism is and how the view that you arrive at differs to classical utilitarianism, which is also, I think, hedonistic in its outlook. So utilitarianism is a version of consequentialism, which is just the view that what you ought to do is to bring about the best possible consequences. Now, utilitarianism says something a little bit more specific about what the best consequences would be. It says that the best consequences are, usually it's put in terms of welfare. So what you should do is the thing that brings about the most total welfare across you know, all the people or all of the, the experiencing beings that you're taking into account. It's about maximizing welfare. Hedonistic utilitarianism, and the classical utilitarians were hedonistic, says, well, welfare ultimately just comes down to these positive and negative experiences that we have, the pleasure and the pain we experience. So if you're a hedonistic utilitarian, then you're going to say what we ought to do is to maximize the amount of pleasure minus pain in the world. Now, at a practical level, my view agrees with the classical utilitarians. But when it comes to the question of justifying this view, we're different. The classical utilitarians, I'm thinking particularly of Henry Sidgwick, who was writing a few decades after John Stuart Mill. But Sidgwick, the way that he justified his utilitarianism was by appeal to something that he called the principle of utility, which was we should maximize the, the amount of pleasure over pain. And the idea was that this principle was the best way of systematizing the moral intuitions that we have. So if we look at what sorts of things people think are good and bad, and we try to organize them into some sort of system, the system that we get, Sidgwick thought, is the principle of utility. This is the best way of explaining where our moral intuitions are coming from, that ultimately this is what we're aiming at in doing ethics. Now, I don't think that we need some separate principle of utility that we have to argue for or that we have to appeal to our moral intuitions in order to support, because I think we have a much more direct epistemological connection to goodness and badness, and that's these experiences of pleasure and pain. I think the ethical oomph 
the oughtness of ethics comes from the intrinsic nature of these experiences. So the badness of the pain is itself the reason to avoid it. You don't need an additional principle of utility that says, well, you should avoid pain or you, know, you should maximize good experience over bad. No, it's the experiences themselves that give you that normativity, that give you that, that oomph. So what I'm trying to do that's a little bit different than the classical utilitarians is to to ground the principle of utility in these more basic moral facts about what our experience is like. Yes. This, I think, is what makes your view more elegant in a way. You don't need this principle of utility because these positive and and negative states entail within them the to-be-promotedness or the to-be-minimized-ness of them. Uh, So this is something about your view that I do find particularly attractive. The other thing that always made utilitarianism uh, attractive to me as a moral theory is that even 200 years ago, when the position was first being defended, it seemed even back then to be pointing to various ethical concerns that at the time were very much on the fringe, but are now much more widely recognized. So, for example, the first utilitarians were very committed to women's rights, abolishing slavery, decriminalizing homosexuality. And I think they were virtually on their own, at least in the West, in also being concerned about the suffering of other species. Today, of course, none of these issues are particularly controversial, but 200 years ago, a lot of that was just unthinkable. So it does, to me, I think, count in favor of the view that it has been quite an accurate forecaster of what many people would now recognize as moral progress. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point that I, I haven't heard. I don't know if I've heard other people make. I, I think that's a really important observation. Uh, I think it is a, it's a view that is progressive. So instead of simply trying to find an ethics that accommodates our current ethical intuitions, utilitarianism instead of some moral views that would just take those you know, basic moral intuitions as given, utilitarianism actually gives us a tool for exploring when our intuitions might be right or wrong or what sort of information we should try to gather in order to have better views about what we ought to do. So yeah, it, it does have this progressive elements that is important. One criticism that people have raised to utilitarianism is that in some cases it does seem to endorse certain actions that intuitively seem very wrong. So there is of course this famous example in which a doctor has these five patients and all of them need an organ transplant or they will die. But then a healthy person walks into the doctor's practice just looking for a routine checkup. So the argument is that utilitarianism morally obliges this uh, this doctor to kill this healthy man and distribute his organs right. between these five patients uh, to save their lives. I have my own thoughts about why this isn't actually entailed by <laughs> utilitarianism, but Sharon, how do you respond to this classic argument against utilitarianism? So... Thinking that a utilitarian would say that you ought to kill this person who wandered in looking for their routine annual checkup in order to save these other five people is a very oversimplistic understanding of what utilitarianism says. 
because utilitarianism has to take into account not only all the possible effects of the actions that you take, but also has to take into account what other actions you could have taken that would have been even better. So in this case, it might seem like killing this one person in order to use their organs to save five other people seems like the obvious utilitarian thing to do. But in fact, there are lots of other ways that you could deal with this situation that might produce even more pleasure over pain in the long run. So we need to pay attention to all of the other alternative possibilities. For instance, yes, we need more organ donors, let's say, but maybe we could find them in a way that wouldn't discourage people from going to the doctor for routine checkups, because this is going to be a really big problem for the medical system if people can't trust that when they go to the doctor, they're going to generally come out healthier than when they went <laughs> in. If, <laughs> Um, so people are going to stop going, going to the doctor so much. And this is actually a pretty big thing. So we, we need the consideration of possibly better alternatives, but we also need to understand the way that taking a certain action is going to affect people's expectations in the future and the way that they behave in the future. So we know that we want people to be able to trust the medical system. We also, we want people to be motivated to take care of their own bodies the best that they can. And I'm certainly not saying that people who need organ transplants need them through their own fault. That, that That's not at all what I'm saying. But in a world where you would routinely kill healthy people to use their organs to save people who need organ transplants, there would, in that case, be a motivation for people not to take as good care of themselves because the better care you take of yourself, the better an organ donor you would be. So the more <laughs> likely that your organs would be harvested. And you also know that, well, if I don't take that good care of myself, well, you know, they'll just kill some healthier person to help me out. So we don't want to create a world like that. We want to encourage people the best that we can to take care of their bodies. And, and part of the way that we do that is by giving people to a large extent control and ownership over their own body. We don't go and, and take away their health for some reason that's, that's unrelated to them. People need to have an expectation about their own future in order to motivate positive behavior now. There are a lot of complicated questions related to the kinds of expectations that we set up to the way that we um, motivate people in the society at large. There are also, and I talk about this in the book, I, I think I I spend several pages on this question because there are so many different elements and overlapping considerations. But a couple of the other ones are this question of secrecy. Because a lot of people say, well, you can avoid creating negative expectations, avoid creating fear of the doctor in these situations if you just keep it secret that you've done this organ transplant. But the thing is, when you start doing things in secret, you cut yourself off from a lot of important information, from advice from other people. If something goes wrong during the surgery, you can't ask people for help without risking being discovered. So secrecy itself is not, it's not in general a good tactic. It's not something that we should encourage for these various reasons. So all of these different things are connected to one another. And if you look at the classical utilitarians, if you look at John Stuart Mill, yeah, so John Stuart Mill, in his essay on liberty, he was making these sorts of arguments for the importance of 
allowing people to make their own decisions, of allowing people to have spheres of freedom in which other people wouldn't interfere with their life or with their thoughts or with their projects and pursuits. And he was a utilitarian. He's, he's the utilitarian. So it, it's interesting to me that even though he was making that argument you know, 150 years ago about for liberty, for individual rights from a utilitarian perspective, still people think that utilitarians don't have regard for rights, that, that somehow you can't make a utilitarian case for the importance of rights. And I just think that that's, that that's wrong. It does seem like having rights and having certain agreed upon rules like don't murder people are worth having if only because they lead to greater utility. So yeah, when we take into account, I think the larger consequences of this organ donor scenario, and of course utilitarianism is a consequentialist theory, uh, then yeah, on the one hand, you've saved these five patients. But if doctors actually started murdering people like this, then the broader negative consequences would clearly make it such that this isn't actually a utilitarian choice to make. So to be honest, I've never really found this argument particularly persuasive, but it is a very well-known one. So my next question is about what we should prioritize. So in the classic utilitarian view, broadly speaking, uh, we should minimize suffering and maximize happiness. Do you take a view about which of these should be our ethical priority? Do you think, as some philosophers argue, that reducing suffering should be our overriding concern? From a theoretical standpoint, I don't think we can make a case for the ultimate priority of suffering over happiness, of eliminating suffering as being a more important priority than producing happiness. Now, from a practical standpoint, it may be the case that the best way to promote the overall balance of pleasure over pain in a world is to deal with cases of terrible, terrible suffering. Because it may be that that's actually the easiest way, that the most effective way to improve the overall balance of pleasure over pain. That is, you couldn't take the same resources that it would take to alleviate that pain and create that much positive pleasure in someone else, then yeah, you need to attend to the suffering so I don't, from a theoretical perspective, find the priority of suffering over pleasure a compelling view. I think when we are experiencing pain and pleasure, we can experience the valence of each of those things, and we experience how they weigh against one another. So when we make our own choices about, well, what painful experience am I willing to go through in order to get this other pleasurable experience, we're able to weigh those things against each other. And, and we do realize that certain pleasures will outweigh certain pains. So it's not that we should just get rid of all, all pain and not worry about creating pleasure, because that's not what the experiences tell us about their relative values. But again, if it comes down to the practical situation and there's such egregious suffering in the world that could be easily relieved, then yeah, that should be our first priority. But not because pleasure doesn't matter, but because that's what we can most e where we can make the biggest difference. One of the general features of utilitarianism is its impartiality. Um, so we're obligated under utilitarianism to care about all experiences, whether or not they belong to us directly. 
how in your specific meta-ethical view do we get to this impartiality? What are the logical reasons that we should care about experiences that we don't have access to directly? I think there's both a positive argument to be made here and a negative argument to be made. So let's start with the positive one, which I think comes from, again, the nature of the experiences themselves when we introspect on them. When we introspect on, say, an experience of pain, when we feel that ought not to be this, that the badness of that experience, we're not experiencing a relationship to a particular agent. All we're experiencing is that this thing right here that I'm experiencing, this pain, this is bad. It would be better if this didn't exist. And I think what we feel is that anybody around us who would have the ability to make that thing not exist or to cease to exist has a reason to do so. That reason is just the intrinsic badness that we're feeling. But the connection to action doesn't have to come through having the experience yourself. The connection to action comes from the fact that somebody else could prevent it. And the ability to prevent something that is intrinsically bad means that you have a reason to do it. So I don't think that there's an intrinsic connection to it, a particular agent or a particular action. I think it's a blanket ought to be-ness or ought not to be-ness that we experience. But then the negative argument is if you look at what it would mean to justify a view on which pain and pleasure are only normative, they're only reasons for the people who are actually experiencing them, I think you run into a lot of difficulties particularly with identifying the boundaries of personal identity. Somebody who is an egoistic hedonist says, so they think, well, yeah, pleasure and pain are all that matter, but only my pleasure and pain matter for me. That person has to figure out, okay, well, which, which pleasures and pains that I could bring about in the future, which of those are actually mine? Well, this idea of personal identity over time has always been something of a conundrum for, for philosophers. And somebody who's done a lot of really, uh, really good work in this area is Derek Perfit. I think you've actually done, haven't you done a, a video uh, specifically dealing with Derek Parfit's work on personal identity? Not specifically about Derek Parfit, okay. but I am very familiar with his reasons and persons. Yeah. I did do a video about split brain patients, which got into some of this stuff. Oh, yeah. So this is one of his cases. So let's talk about that for a second. So when he's trying to show how personal identity is actually a vague concept, uh, an indeterminate concept, he asks us to imagine this case where he himself, Derek Parfit, is in a car accident with his two triplet brothers. And in this horrific accident, Derek Parfit's body is completely mangled beyond recovery. And his two brothers, their bodies are perfectly fine, but each of their brains are completely unrecoverable. So some enterprising doctor decides, well, we will take Derek Parfit's brain. And because we know that half of a brain can survive and basically produce the same personality as the person the same personality as the whole brain, well, we'll just split his brain into the two hemispheres and we'll put one in one of his triplet brother's bodies and one in the other. So based on what we know about the neuroscience, it seems like this is something that if we could make brain transplants work as far as you know accepting the, 
the organ that we would actually have two bodies of his brothers who have his consciousness, who have his memories, who have his personality characteristics, maybe with some little differences based on differences between the right and the left hemisphere, but generally enough to say that they are relevantly like him. Parvid actually, he's really ingenious in the way that he presents these cases. So before he presents this case, he actually first presents a case where only half of his brain is viable and is transplanted into one other body. And we're like, well, is that still me? And we say, well, yeah, it's relevantly like you. So yeah, that's still Derek Parfit. But then he presents this case where both of the halves of his brain survive, but in different bodies. And he says, okay, well, which one is Derek Parfit, right? Because we don't want to say both of them are because that doesn't seem right. We don't think that we can actually split and be two people but we don't want to say that neither of them are because in the case where only one half of the brain survived, we would say that Derek Parfit survived. So what's going on here? So there's one case where, where personal identity, it, it's not easy to figure out what you should say in this case. It doesn't seem like there's a determinate answer. And in another case, which is a little bit easier to describe, he talks about taking his brain and nerve cell by nerve cell or replacing his brain with the cells of Greta Garbo's brain when she was like 30 years old or something. So one by one, we start taking out Parfit's brain cells and putting in Greta Garbo's brain cells. At what point is this brain no longer Derek Parfit? And at what point does it become Greta Garbo instead? There's no clear line where it changes from being one person into being the other person. It just seems like there are these various relationships of psychological continuity and connectedness between these brains at different times, but there's no, there's no definite line. So if we then take those observations and we transfer that to the ethical case, well, personal identity is this very vague sort of concept. We don't have a definite line where personal identity starts and stops, and it seems like it could be a matter of degree in a lot of cases. How does this affect what positive and negative experiences in the future are normative for me now? Like how much does my future brain have to be like my current brain for those future experiences to be normative for the current me? And what we realize is that we're always talking about some degree of of this uh, psychological connectedness and continuity. But is psychological connectedness and continuity relevant to what we ought to do and whether pleasure and pain ought to be promoted or avoided? It doesn't seem like the right sort of thing. Like, why is the fact that that future person is going to have my memories or some portion of my memories, why is that relevant to whether their pleasure or pain is bad and I ought to promote or avoid it? Why not pick some other random um, random property about this person? Like, could be the fact that, well, I'm wearing a red t-shirt today, and if my future self is, or if that person in the future is wearing a red t-shirt, then I should promote their pleasure and avoid their pain. But if they're not, then it doesn't matter. I don't think that there is, there's a compelling connection between simple psychological connectedness and the similarities in, in memory and, and personality that would make pleasure and pain normative in some cases and not normative in others. Yeah, and I think it's true to say, and I think Parfit also says this at some point, but that we are as different to ourselves at different stages in our lives as we are to other people. So, yeah, it doesn't really make sense to care about only our future experiences because, like you say, when you actually start to examine the self, 
it seems like the closer you look at it or the more sort of angles that you look at it from, the more it starts to look like kind of an illusion or, or at least not a coherent concept. I do wonder if there is another way to impartiality. Uh, this is a way that I've explored, but mm-hmm. I think I might actually like your uh, way better. But is it possible, do you think, in utilitarianism to to get to a kind of impartiality if we come to see ourselves as consciousness itself? Uh, since the self breaks down when you try to look for it, mm-hmm. what we're left with, what is not apparently reducible, is consciousness. And so in that identity of consciousness, then all experiences become our own in this kind of open individualist extended sense. I don't know. Is that? No, 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 no. I'm I'm sorry because you can't see me. You can't see them. I'm thinking very thoughtfully about what you're saying because I, uh, no, I think it's, I think it's a very, it's a very compelling way of looking at things. And I do tend to think of consciousness as this very holistic, very connected thing. It actually makes me think of um, some of the work that Sharon Street is doing with the way that meditation and the insights that you can have about consciousness in the state of meditation can inform your understanding of ethics. So I, I do think that there's something very insightful and important there and I, I don't know if I can say more about it than what you just did, but I definitely think that that route is also worth exploring. Absolutely. So a while back, I interviewed the philosopher David Pierce. Uh, he's also another hedonistic utilitarian. And something that he's argued is that in the future, if we embrace this view, that we will be driven to make certain biological changes to our brains and to our psychology that would effectively eliminate all states of suffering and pain. So all of our experiences, as he puts it, would be raised above hedonic zero. Uh, But also that we would do this not just for ourselves, but for the entire uh, natural world. And that this would in fact be an ethical obligation uh, on us to do this when we uh, have the confidence that this is something that we can do safely. It is, of course, a very radical position. So, yeah, Sharon, I wonder how far down this sort of transhumanist direction you're willing to go. Well, as far as actually has positive consequences, one worry that I have about the feasibility of that picture is that I'm not sure that you can motivate people or other animals with low levels of pleasure to the same extent that you can motivate them with pain. So many times when we're experiencing pain, the reason we're experiencing pain is because our our bodies are trying to send us a signal about something that we're doing or something that's being done to us that we need to get away from and that we need to stop because it's going to cause harm to ourselves and it's going to you know, affect us long into the future. Um, or maybe even lead to our death. So the pain is signaling something that is very important for us to get away from or to stop in some way. If we replace that pain with some low level of pleasure, then presumably we would replace that pain with some low level of pleasure. And if we got away from whatever this negative stimulus was, that then our pleasure level would shoot up. In getting away from the negative thing, we're trying to achieve this even higher level of pleasure. That's what's supposed to be motivating us. I'm not sure that that would actually work. 
because there's something about a qualitative state that is worse than nothing that motivates us in a way that I, I don't think if you have, you know, a state that's yeah, sort of ho-hum, but it's still a positive state, you're not necessarily going to be motivated to get to the even better hedonic state. Partly because you have to you have to be able to vividly imagine what that other hedonic state is in order to get that motivation going. Whereas in the pain state, all you have to imagine is getting out of this state. I haven't read David Pierce's book. Maybe he has a response to this worry, but that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Yeah, I think he does. Uh, I think he's thought about yeah. all of this pretty thoroughly. Yeah, to be he's honest. thought about it for a while. Yeah, let me let me give you like a concrete example. The work that was done with trying to help leprosy patients, one of the things that happens with leprosy patients when they can't feel their fingers, say, is that they don't know when they're actually damaging them. And they end up cutting them or damaging them in other ways that eventually lead them to get infected and they have to be amputated. So this one particular doctor, Paul Brand, actually pioneered these various devices that were meant to help leprosy patients be aware of things that they were doing to their hands, even though they didn't have sensitivity in them. So he had these special gloves that were made that would sense damage to the fingers and then alert the, the people to what was going on. Unfortunately, it didn't work, um, at least in the first iteration, uh, it didn't work because they just ignored the signals. Like the, the gloves were saying, you're hurting your hand, stop doing this, and they would just do it anyway. So then they decided, well, they needed a new iteration of this that would actually cause pain to the leprosy uh, patients, but in a still sensitive part of their body. So they would actually hook up these gloves to someplace in their torso where they still had pain sensitivity. And so it would give them some experience of pain whenever they were damaging their fingers. But there was also an issue here because the patients would end up just turning the machine off to get rid of the pain instead of not doing the damage to their fingers. If there was an easier way to get rid of the pain without getting rid of the, the negative stimulus, then they would take that route. So I was just going to say that I think we have to have this very close connection between the damage that's being done and feeling the pain in our bodies so that we, we can't just get rid of the pain without fixing the problem. And sometimes we, we've sort of been able to break open that connection, right? So we have pretty effective painkilling drugs these days that allow us to break that connection. And that can be very damaging for some people, um, especially when they get hooked on these, these kinds of painkillers. I know David Pierce sees the importance of these states for motivation. I'm not convinced, at least from what I know so far, that you could do the same thing with pleasure that pain does. Right. So it's really more of a, a practical concern that you have about whether or not raising all experiences into the positive range could be achieved while also maintaining the function that's currently served by some amount of pain. Um, so presumably, if that didn't turn out to be an issue, then a world in which there was simply no suffering, an entire ecology without any suffering would be a good world in your view. Oh, yeah. If we can get it to work, then that would be great. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to future generations. So one of the things that we've not really talked about yet is how your view factors in future generations. So assuming that we do survive and that the life of Earth survives, 
It seems plausible that the great majority of life's potential exists in the future. Uh, you know, the universe is very young uh, relative to how long it will exist for. And it is at least possible that our ancestors could exist for millions or even billions of years and potentially realize incredible value in the universe. So Sharon, how does your view factor in potential intrinsic value, which is not yet realized? Well, it's absolutely crucial to the view. I mean, even if we're just talking about the short-term future, whenever we're making a decision about different actions that we can take, we're always talking about what future pleasure or pain that's going to cause. So there's no question about whether future pleasure and pain are normative for us, because that's always what we're talking about. Any consequentialist, any utilitarian, they're always talking about future pleasure and pain being normative. If there's any disagreement about whether pleasure or pain long into the future is important. It's just a question of how far into the future it would have to be to somehow become less important. And I don't, I don't really understand why anyone would think that just because pleasure or pain is farther in the future, it's less normative for us. I think because it's the intrinsic feeling of these things that is the normativity, that is, is the value or the disvalue, and that doesn't change over time, then yeah, the pleasure and pain that people are feeling 500 million years from now, yeah, it's just as valuable or disvaluable as the pleasure and pain that people are feeling today or tomorrow. Now, that being said, that's the theoretical side, but then we get to the practical side. Well, how do you actually make practical decisions that are going to positively affect what happens in 500 million years from now? Presumably you invest in reducing existential risk, right? Yeah, well, no. I mean, I think there are so many questions that, that come up here, right? So we're talking about existential risk. Are we talking just about the human species? Are we talking about all species that are able to experience consciousness or pleasure and pain? We start to get into questions of how widely distributed in the world is pleasure and pain. Do you have to actually be a biological being to experience this, or, or maybe is panpsychism true, and are even microparticles, <laughs> the fundamental particles of physics, are they experiencing something like pleasure and pain? Would that still exist even if there were no more biological creatures? We don't have an answer to that question right now, or at least not one that everyone agrees on. But those questions do factor into these questions of how big of a problem would it be if humanity went extinct? or if all life on Earth disappeared, or this question of should we go and seed life on other planets or in, you know, in other places in the universe. I think these are definitely important questions, and I'm, and I'm glad that, especially within the effective altruism community, that people are really thinking on this big scale, because there are things that we can do right now that could drastically affect the potential for future pleasure and pain in the universe, at least with what we know about what sorts of things can be conscious and, and not conscious. But also when, we're, when we start to think at this big of a scale, we're talking about you know, the rest of the universe, we're talking about hundreds of millions of years into the future. If we're not 100% sure which actions we could take would produce the best long run outcome then maybe we need to be very conservative about the actions that we take. And I think this is actually something that a lot of long-termists talk about, although maybe not exactly these terms. 
but that we need to take actions that are going to leave open as many future possibilities as possible. So we want to protect humanity. We know that humanity experiences this kind of pleasure and, and pain, that the experience of humanity we feel generally is valuable. So that's something to protect and make sure that this can still exist in the future. But there are all of these other kinds of biological life that it seems like we should protect into the future. And a lot of other things that we should, you know, when in doubt, protect it and make sure that it's still there tomorrow in case we realize that, oh, that thing is actually more important than we thought. I'm thinking particularly like in relationship to questions that people have had about the consciousness of computers and AI and, well, maybe in the future we could just create computers that experience all of this pleasure and we won't even need human beings or any kind of biological creatures. And I think at least at least with our the, the knowledge that we have about consciousness right now and probably the knowledge that we can hope to have within the next few hundred years, that it would be so hubristic and so risky to say, yeah, we know that those computers would have way more pleasure than we could ever have. And that we're willing to to sideline all of these these biological creatures that have existed for billions of years in favor of these computers that we have just invented. We have to keep our options open. We have to be really careful that even if we really think we know what is valuable in this world, that we realize that we could be wrong and allow there to be a way to to go back if we make a mistake. You're expressing, I think, a concern about what's known as value lock-in. Yeah, yeah. Which is this risk of our adopting strategies based on current beliefs that could be wrong or incomplete, and as a result, significantly reduce or curtail our future potential. And Mm -hmm. I agree with you. I think this is really important. I think this is why reducing existential risk is such a high priority because we need to make sure that these trillions of future beings that might descend from us or from the life of Earth actually have a chance to exist and come to their own views about what holds value in the universe. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this connects to to David Pearson and transhumanism, because if we change the way that our biology works, we have, in a sense, that's another way in which human extinction can happen. If we completely change our biology going forward and there's no way to go back, we have to be really, really sure that it's going to work out, right? Maybe one day that sort of genetic or other sort of manipulation of human biology will seem safer. But I think right now we should prioritize what they've been calling the long reflection, right? Let's just give ourselves some time to think about this stuff before we rush headlong into completely transforming ourselves or the natural world any more than we already have. Let's let our philosophy and our ethics catch up a little bit to what our technology has been doing. Yes, absolutely. So to change the subject slightly, it does seem to me that if we could compare the amount of pleasure and pain in the world, to me, I don't think it would be at all surprising if it was to turn out that the majority of all conscious experiences are states of suffering. Darwinian evolution, I think, can be viewed as a monstrous engine of suffering, endless cycles of predation over billions of years. 
And, you know, this is, of course, to say nothing about the billions of animals living these miserable lives in factory farms. And so if value and disvalue are truly identical to these positive and negative conscious states, then the world begins to look a bit like one long moral emergency. Um, so yeah, Sharon, how do you think about Darwinian suffering? Can you paint a more uplifting picture? Well, I'm actually, so I'm a little bit surprised actually that nature looks that full of suffering to you. That's not how it appears to me. And granted, probably neither of us have such a deep acquaintance with nature that we can claim that our intuitions are right about this. So I'm just noting that that we have different reactions. Yeah, I mean, I do have a deep love of nature. You know, there's nowhere that I'm happier than when I'm in the forest. It's just that I have to recognize that most animals are prey animals and are constantly in the business of avoiding being eaten alive. And yeah, I don't know if there's more suffering in nature than positive states, but if that were uh, to turn out to be the case, then that wouldn't be all that surprising to me. Mm -hmm. It would be very surprising to me. Maybe that's partly because I do feel like there is some kind of meaning and even benevolence behind the universe. It would surprise me if suffering overwhelmed pleasure in the natural world. So I hope that that's, that's not true. Me too, obviously. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that the problem of suffering, whether it's specifically Darwinian suffering or, or more generally, is real. Even if there's, there's more pleasure than, than pain in the world as a whole, it does certainly seem that there are individuals whose lives where the suffering vastly outweighs the pleasure and that alone, I feel like there's a very strong tension between that and any belief that there might be sort of an ethical purpose to the universe or an ethical intention by the universe. That's something that we have, as a species, always wrestled with. And I know that I, as an individual, have certainly wrestled with. If I feel like there is hope in that area, some possibility that that, that suffering doesn't mean that the universe is just indifferent or, or even sadistic. I think it's because there aren't just these experiences of suffering. Maybe for some people or for some creatures, that is almost the whole of their experience. But for those of us that are lucky enough to experience those moments of very intense pleasure, which I, I feel like this is one of those places where the word pleasure doesn't do it justice, but these moments when you can feel almost this like existential ecstasy, in those moments, it feels like there has to be, or at least it's very possible that there is some positive governing force. Let me add one other thing. So I've been very lucky not to experience a lot of terrible suffering in my life. But even the suffering that I have experienced in those moments of the deepest suffering that I've experienced, I have felt that there's no way that there is a reason for this. There's, there's no goodness in this world that could justify this kind of suffering. But I've said, I've said that to myself in those moments. And I'm thinking of this one particular experience. It was like a few months after that, then I had one of these like ecstatic experiences. And it was like, oh well, this makes that worth it. This is good enough to balance out that suffering. I just didn't know how good it could be. 
So sometimes I feel like the problem of suffering is a lack of imagination on our part to actually understand what all of this could be aiming at. Maybe there is a kind of cosmic ecstasy that this suffering here is necessary for and in some way is able to produce and that somehow it is all worth it. We just can't see it from here. Yeah, and I'm certainly open-minded about some kind of natural teleology in the universe. I've looked into that quite a bit, but with regard to this imbalance of pleasure and pain in uh, Darwinian evolution, I do think perhaps a more optimistic view, if that is the case, I think a more optimistic view is to imagine how far life could improve in the future. So um, one of the really striking things about long-termist thinking is that we potentially exist at the very beginning of history and that life may develop in ways that we simply can't imagine. And I know that you know many people are quite allergic to transhumanism or interfering with nature in ways that could have deleterious consequences. But I think that one way that we can look at this is that evolution is becoming conscious of itself. So evolution, as it is enlisted consciousness and developed intelligence, is slowly redirecting itself away from what may be a blind reproductive process that entails a lot of needless suffering towards a conscious evolution that is directed towards conscious value and to eventually explore regions of conscious value that we are currently completely blind to. And so on the one hand, yeah, maybe we do emerge from this brutal Darwinian nature, but Perhaps it is entailed within that process that by enlisting consciousness and then intelligence that this evolutionary process, uh, perhaps even as part of the universe's evolutionary process, it can eventually become this radically benevolent force. I don't know, is that... Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think... So I was sort of imagining the positivity that would outweigh all of the suffering as being something that you could experience with that a single subject might be able to experience in a single moment. And what you're saying is, well, maybe it's not that maybe it's spread out over millions of years, over millions and billions of subjects. And that's how we get that immense positivity from that, that enormous population through time. And yeah, in this evolution to a state that is that doesn't require perpetual suffering in order to progress. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it before, but I think there's an interesting connection between and parallel between those two views. So Sharon, in addition to this, I think, groundbreaking book about ethics, you've also looked at various other relatively controversial subjects, but with a very open mind. You've written an entire book about synchronicities, which for people who don't know, this is the name for... Uh, I guess, coincidences, which appear to convey some kind of meaning from the universe. Uh, it's a concept that in Western thinking, uh, I believe, originates with Carl Jung. So yeah, I'm very interested to hear your general view about why this is a subject that people should actually take seriously. So let me first offer a slightly more technical description of synchronicity, although I think you've gotten at the core of it, but I I actually tend to call them coincidences because synchronicity does imply that there is meaning to them. There's some process of meaning. 
And I'm interested in even, you know, coincidences that maybe they don't turn out to have meaning. Like I'm sort of agnostic about it. And what I'm interested in is just all the ones that seem like they might, and then let's investigate what's actually going on um, and what kinds of connections there are between these different events. I go back and forth actually about which term is best to use because it does seem like in popular culture, synchronicity is becoming the word of choice, but it does sort of imply that you do think that they're significant or you think that Carl Jung was right in sort of the way that he theorized about them. So in, in any case, what is interesting to me is these events that happen in people's lives where two things will happen that you have no reason to think are causally connected in any way that we understand. And yet those two events have a parallel significance for you. There's a similarity between them that's so striking that it makes you think there must be some connection here. I don't see how on current science and my understanding of how these two events came about, there could be a connection, but the coincidence, the coinciding of these two events is so striking that I almost can't help but think that there's something more going on. So these events are hinting to us, truly or not, maybe it's deceptively, but they're presenting to us this hint of connections where we don't expect to find them. There are all different kinds of events where this can happen, but I think where people experience it most commonly is what seem like telepathic connections. So, you know, you might think of somebody um, that you haven't talked to in months and then right then they call you on the phone or they send you a text message or you have a dream one night about something you know really improbable that seems you know kind of crazy and then it turns out that that day that thing that you thought was totally crazy happens there are all of these events that suggest connections between people's minds that suggest connections between the present and the future that we wouldn't expect. There are even coincidences where it seems like your thoughts are somehow manifesting in physical form in events that you see outside of yourself when you had no way to impact how these things would come about. So these connections that I think a lot of us experience, but most of the time you can explain them away as just chance. You know, a lot of stuff is happening to us a lot of time. And eventually, like some of these things are going to happen by chance that, you know, they seem like, oh, well, that's a funny coincidence. Um, but it's not going to make us reconsider our entire worldview. But for some people, including myself, eventually you have an experience that is so significant, so powerfully meaningful, and so improbable based on what we know or you think we know about how the world works physically, that it leads us to think there's something operating in this world that science hasn't understood yet. And that thing operates at the level of mind and at the level of meaning. So it's, it's arranging things that are happening in the world with the intention of conveying meaning of a certain sort or producing to connect it to the ethics stuff of moving things in a benevolent way, doing something that is beneficial for the person experiencing them. So I don't think that I would take this seriously. I didn't take this seriously until, <laughs> until I had my own experience that I just couldn't explain in any other way. 
But once I had that, I, I actually started paying attention to what other people were saying about these experiences and, and doing so much research and discovered that there are too many of these experiences for us to explain it based on what we know right now, scientifically. There's something else going on in the world. And it has to do with consciousness and mind somehow affecting the world by means that we don't understand yet. I have certainly experienced what seem like very meaningful coincidences in my life, things that seemed like they should be billions to one. My view about this at the moment is that I am skeptical. I do think that apparent synchronicities are more likely the result of the fact that I just have billions of relatively mundane experiences all the time, such that now and again, you know, just by chance, the world appears to be reflecting uh, my inner life in this uncanny way. Having said that, I am open-minded about it. And when it happens, I do pause and think about what that could mean, mm -hmm. uh, mainly because I just regard the universe as being extremely mysterious and you know, more mysterious than we typically realize. Uh, so it's not something that I just brush aside. And, you know, if consciousness is one of nature's deep fundamentals, which mm -hmm. is a view that both of us take seriously, then perhaps, like you say, meaning is also in some sense fundamental. Uh, so yeah, Sharon, I wonder what is your preferred theory about what coincidences are and how they work? <laughs> that is a huge question. Um, and part of why my book on this subject turned out to be more than 600 pages is because I had a lot of different theories and wasn't sure that any one of them would cover all of the different experiences. But if I had, if I had to say, yeah, my preferred theory, I think the view that seems most promising to me right now is that the world is fundamentally unified. We experience it as spread out in space and time. But space and time are actually, they don't ultimately exist at the fundamental level. And so and we're starting to see like glimmers of this in, in quantum physics. We, we've noticed these weird non-local effects. We've noticed quantum entanglement, and we're trying to puzzle out, well, what, what does this really mean about the fundamental nature of reality? And, you know, philosophers of science, they don't agree about this yet. But we notice there's something mysterious going on. And I think that if you do take seriously the idea that, well, ultimately, space and time are not insuperable hurdles for causality, that things can affect other things at a distance, then we start to see, well, maybe the, you know, we, we, we think of our consciousness as only being able to influence the world by somehow, somehow influencing the way that our neurons are communicating with one another and then how they're, you know, informing the behavior of our body. But if ultimately space and time are illusions or projections, then there's no fundamental reason why my mind couldn't, in some cases, affect things outside of it, affect other minds or affect the physical world directly. It doesn't have to be just limited to controlling what's going on in my brain. And I think these experiences, that the really striking ones, that that is to me the most persuasive way of explaining them. It's that somehow my mind isn't just limited to my body, or rather all of the world 
not that my mind is in the world, but that the world is an expression of consciousness. It's an experience of consciousness before anything else. And we have a more direct connection with it than materialist, mechanistic science of the past few hundred years has recognized. Sharon, we've come to the end of our time together today. I would love to just keep talking to you about your work. I really hope that we can do this again in the future. Uh, But for now, where should people go to find out more about you and your work and continue exploring your ideas? Uh, Well, you could definitely check out my website, Sharon Rollette. And Rollette is spelled R-A-W-L-E-T-T-E. It's SharonRollette.wordpress.com, or you can just Google my name and you will find it. Um, You'll see all my books um, in various genres um, and links to my various scholarly articles and things there. Okay, I will make sure that there are links to all of those in the description of this episode. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you very much for being so generous with your time, and I sincerely hope that we can do this again. This has been a wonderful conversation, Adrian. I, I really appreciated the depth of your questions and I've learned a lot. Hi everyone, Adrian here. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Waking Cosmos, where I have open-minded but philosophically literate conversations about consciousness and its place in reality. Wherever you're listening to this, please consider helping us to stimulate the algorithm by giving us a nice rating or a thumbs up. And if you'd like to go further, you can support the continued existence of Waking Cosmos by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash wakingcosmos. Okay, that is about it from me today. I hope you have a beautiful day.